We're continuing on this morning. If you guys want to turn to Exodus chapter 32, if you have a Bible. Exodus chapter 32. We're continuing on with this series that we, is basically just want, it's just a desire to camp on this reality that God has to be bigger than other stuff if, if, it's, if it's really God. Um, if, if what we're thinking about, if what we're talking about, if what we're following, if what we're worshiping is really God, then it's going to be bigger than other stuff. And those, those other things that compete in our hearts and our minds uh, for size, for, for magnitude, for greatness, those things that compete uh, with God for that attention, those, those we call idols. They're things that are small that we, we give an inordinate amount of size or mental space to. They become big uh, when they should be smaller. And in doing so, God becomes smaller. And so we just want to camp on this reality of the bigness of God and that these other things are idols that we want to root out and we want to hammer into the ground. We want to get rid of. Um, I don't know about you, but I actually believe this stuff. I mean, I do. Uh, the stuff that we talk about, the stuff that we believe. And so coming on Sunday mornings isn't just kind of a routine. It's like, man, there's something at the core of this that is so powerful and meaningful and true. And, and we just collectively and individually have to get a hold of this. And, and it makes all the difference in life. It's not just a difference for this week or a self-help thing with whatever I'm struggling with on self-esteem over here or whatever. It's, it's the overarching reality for life. Um, and so we want to kind of continue on and talk about the idol of progress the idol of progress. And so if you'll look at Exodus 32 with me, I'm just going to read a good chunk here, and it's a very familiar story. So Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt. They've been in slavery. They've been in captivity. He leads them out of Egypt, and they come into the desert now, and they're, they're in the desert, and, and Moses leaves them to go on the mountain. And this is what happened. What happens? And when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. And they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So he's been on the mountain like a long time, weeks. Now, you know, weeks doesn't sound like a long time, but it's like if you're in the desert and you've got hundreds of thousands or, or how, you know, this massive amount of people there's no strip malls, there's no grocery stores, there's no UN to bring kind of food into you. There's no, I mean, a couple of weeks all of a sudden begins to, um, to create problems, doesn't it? And so it's kind of like, man, we've stalled out here. We, and we, that, 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 that's not okay. Like this thing needs to keep going, the momentum needs to keep happening. We need something to sustain us. And this momentum, it's stalled out. We don't know where this guy's at, so we got to look to something else. And so Aaron answers them, and he says, Take off the gold earrings that your wives have and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. By the way, um, when I grew up, like, if a guy had earrings, he was, like, ungodly or bad or something like that. You know, what's funny is we have these cultural things that have nothing to do with the Bible, like, so here's a verse you can just mark if you're a guy that has earrings. Um, 
Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Guys had earrings like all the way back then. Um, And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, a golden calf. And then they said, so all the people now say, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron takes all the gold, he melts it down, he shapes it, uh, puts it in front of it. All these kind of people say, here everybody, here are the gods that have led us up out of Egypt. Let's worship them. And he says, so when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down to eat and drink And they got up to indulge in revelry. It's really fascinating. Um, Nietzsche, the philosopher Nietzsche, uh, was actually a philologist, which meant he studied like ancient words and languages. And he was a Greek scholar that way. And and he kind of brought these two categories forward, which he called the Apollinean and then Dionysian. And the Dionysian was, Dionysus was uh, the god of wine. And so his cult back in ancient, you know, Greece would, was all about basically the, the rave, the orgy, the, the music and, and coming together. And your individualism kind of gets lost in the collectivism. And in that you find meaning. And it was different than the Apollinean cult in, in the way Nietzsche would describe it, which was much more linear and a and, and lot less on the emotional driven side. Okay. There's something powerful, and that's what we have to watch sometimes as Christians when we do worship. There's something powerful that can take over a, a group of people when they come together and lose themselves in this kind of a, a herd idea, a, a, you know, just this mass, and there's energy to that. Does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you just watch a rave on TV, and you just kind of get lost in it, like sucked into it. Um, there's meaning in that. And sometimes when we don't have meaning or when we're lost, when we're confused, we look to find it not by truth, not by grounding ourselves in kind of these other things, but by, by finding it just in melding into kind of this crowd kind of idea. And so these people that are lost, they're confused, all of a sudden they make this God and they get up and they and engage in revelry and, and there's music if we keep reading and, and they they find their meaning there. That's their answer. That's what they're going to follow. That's what they're going to submit to or serve. And so it goes on. And the Lord says to Moses up on the mountain, go down. Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. So they were, they were true and now they've gone and become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, and they have sacrificed to it, and they have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them. Um, And Moses sought the favor of the Lord, and he basically says, Don't do it. Don't punish them. Don't, don't you know, consume them, don't, whatever. And, and Moses, after he pleads with God and God relents, he goes down. And he brings with him the two tablets, you know, the, 
the picture would be these two tablets of stone that have Ten Commandments on them. And they were inscribed both front and back, and the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And Joshua was up with Moses on the mountain. So Moses goes down a ways, catches Joshua. Joshua and Moses now go down the rest of the way. And when they get close to the camp, Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, and he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Isn't that amazing? And so he goes down and he finds these people that have found their meaning and banding together and experiencing that togetherness, that, that cult-like kind of vibe or feeling, and they're exulting in this. Because for a, a little window of time, now all of a sudden there's something visible that they can get excited about, and everybody else is getting excited about it. And this whole confusion of we're lost and it's stalled out is gone, and it's replaced by this emotionalism. And Moses comes down, and he's like, it's not victory, it's not defeat, it's singing. And he comes and he takes the calf. And I mean, can you just imagine if you were seeing this played out on the screen? He comes down fiery and he just takes the calf and he burns it and he grounds it into powder and he scatters it on the water and then he makes the Israelites drink it. It's like washing your mouth out with soap. That's really what that means. And then he says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that they led you into such great sin? And then Aaron starts making excuses. Why a golden calf? Like, I, I remember reading this story or hearing this story or watching this story, um, Charlton Heston. And, and I always was like, I mean, okay, you've stalled out. God's distant. And you want to make a, an idol. Why a calf? I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, that's weird. So I always used to, man, those people are weird. Like, I was never like the fact that they made an idol. I was always like, they're weird because it's like, why would you make a little calf? Why not something cooler looking, you know? Like, uh, anyways, pictures of my idea of what would be cooler. But why a calf? Well, the real thing is the calf was a god that was in Egypt. It was something they would have seen, experienced, worshipped, been around when they were in Egypt. And so the idea is they come out of Egypt, it stalls out, um, and they're confused. What do they do? They go back to what they know. They go back to what they know. So it's not that illogical that they make a calf. So they come to the desert. And they stall out. How, how do you draw a calf? Wow. Is there some? It's a dog. Um, they've come along. They reach this point where the myth of progress Comes painfully obvious. I'm afraid for some of you Oregon fans that the myth of progress might become painfully obvious. We we think we think that things will always continue. 
Well, I mean, that's just, it's hardwired into us that things should always get better and better and better and better. In 2006, man, I was on that train. I mean, I made like 40% in this little house I've got. And I was telling my buddies, you should go buy a house right now, which was the worst advice I've ever given to people. And so like, I'm like, I, I avoid people on the street that I told they should buy a house like right at the peak of the economy. I mean, and I didn't understand. Um, things don't always get bigger and bigger and better and better. And, and I think we come to God sometimes and he leads us out of, this, this is the whole metaphor for the Christian life, by the way, all through scriptures, Egypt, and then kind of into this desert and into the promised land. And, and we get let out of slavery to sin or, or whatever kind of the not God thing is in our life. And we experience this coolness like I'm free from drinking or porn or from running from my problems or from these bad relationships or from this self-hatred or from this lack of self-esteem or this lack of meaning or, or debt or whatever. Like it's, these things have me. And I come out from that and I get super excited and I think it's just going to get better and better and better. I remember that. Like I, I became a Christian and I went and worked at this summer camp and I met this girl and I was like, man, this, is, this Christian thing's great. You like get on this train and then things just keep big, getting better and bigger and better and bigger. And then all of a sudden she broke up with me and I was, because I, I she, <laughs> this is like me trying to get even with her. It's like a Toby Keith song like, like this, isn't there? <laughs> She, she broke up with me because she says, I want to marry a Christian leader. You're never going to be a Christian leader. You know, it's like, I should write a song, you know. It's nothing to, anyways, just keep it in. Um, it has nothing to do with the girl or the why break, but all of a sudden I'm in this crisis of like, wow, like I'm shaking my Christianity like something's broken. What's going on? Like it's not working. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And there's this crisis because this myth of progress, this idol of progress that we're kind of following all of a sudden shattered and, and we're left kind of in the desert. And, and, um, and what do you do? You stall out. There's no momentum. It's like you're lost. You're confused. What do you do? And the temptation is to go back to drinking or back to those friends or back to spending money like you used to. Or back to running from your problems. You go back to what you know. And the Israelites, they stall out. They go back to what they know. Peter, he's like told, you're going to deny me, Peter. You're going to deny Christ. And he's like, no, I won't. And then the next day, like it all stalls out. Jesus dies. He denies Jesus. It's all chaos. And like two days later, three days later, what's he doing? He's fishing. And you're like, why, why are you fishing? Well, he was a fisherman. That's what he did. That's what Jesus called him out of. You're a fisherman. I'm going to teach you now to go fish for men. You're going to, like, you're going to be a teacher, a leader, an influencer. And all of a sudden, three days later, what's, what's he doing? He's fishing. And he's not, he's not dropping a line. This isn't like a Mark Twain book. He's not, he's not dropping a line because he needs to eat dinner. He's out on the boats with the nets and the fellas and they're trying to pull in a, a haul. He's, he's back to doing what he knows. Does that make sense? So God begins the journey. We get to this place where we stall out 
And we have to wait on God. And that's really difficult and it's confusing. And so what we do is we tend to run back to what we know. We waver. We create for ourselves something else. God is fixed. He's big. His story that's going on isn't off track. He's not caught off guard. He's not confused. He's not lost. It's just more difficult than what we thought. And so we find ourselves here, and instead of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm in God's plan, and God's plan is going, but it's a valley, and it's tough, and I have to look to God, I, we, we, we kind of lose sight of God, and we begin to try to create for ourselves idols that we know. We, I mean, we do this, don't we? And here's the crazy thing. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, you have the retelling of what happens later on in the story. Of They go through the desert, and then they get to the promised land, and Moses sends spies into the promised land. God has brought you out of Egypt. He's leading you through this desert, and he's now going to take you to where he promised. It's good. This is the big win. And, and here's Moses telling the story, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 1. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out for Horeb and we went toward the hill country, the Amorites, through all the vast and dreadful deserts that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea, and then I said to you, you have reached the hill country, the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See that the Lord your God has given you the land, so now go up into the land and take possession of it as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid do not be discouraged. God is big. This is, this is the win. Don't be afraid of anything. Don't be discouraged. It, whatever the obstacles are, they're small. Okay? And then you came to me and you said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and send back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come in. The idea seemed good to me. This is Moses. So I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe, and they left and went up to the hill country and came to the valley and they explored it. And taking with them the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land the Lord our God has given us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and you said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart they say that the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large. And then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did in Egypt before your very eyes. And there you saw how the Lord your God had carried you as a father carries his son. I want you to write that somewhere. As a father carries his son. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you where you should go. And when the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see. And then it goes on and it says, 
Um, God only allowed Joshua, son of Nun, to enter it, and Caleb. And then if you keep going, it says, because they had an undivided heart. They were wholehearted. So I want to try and distill that just a little bit. Come to the promised land. God says, it's yours. Don't be afraid of anything. Go into it, take it. Guys go into it, they come back, and they're divided. God's saying go, but these things are really big. We don't know what to do. We're afraid. In that fear, the answer was this. So, so here's the promised land. It's a hill. It's the sun. So there's the promised land. They get all the way over here. And they do the same thing. It's like, we want to go back to Egypt because, man, it's hard in the desert. And they get all the way to the promised land, and they're like, man, we want to go back to Egypt because it's hard here. We want to go back to what's comfortable, even if it wasn't good when we were there in the first place, because it's hard when we have to wait on God, and it's hard when God tells us to take a risk. But there's two guys that come back, and they're wholehearted. They don't see the size of, of people or the, the challenges. They see the size of their God. And they're like, man, let's go take it. And God says, I like that. I like these guys. These guys are going to see that. I'm going to honor that. I'm going to bless that. And so 40 years later, if you turn to Joshua, I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. It might take a while. But if you get to Joshua, you get to chapter 14. And here's Caleb. And he's not the, the main guy, Joshua is, but Caleb comes to the main guy, Joshua, and he says, remember when I was promised that after 40 years I could go back and take this land that I spied out, this hill country? And he reads it, and he says this in verse 9, chapter 14. So on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. And so he goes on to tell Moses, like, man, I might be 80, but I, I feel like I'm still 40. I'm just as energetic as ever. Give me the toughest land, that piece of land. It's mine. I claim it. I got a big God. And so he goes and he wants to take it. So here's this whole thing. We begin to realize there's two things that happen in this journey that God has us on. When we're in God's story, it doesn't just always get better and better. It's not always consistent, stable progress. And every day is better than the one before it. And there's this myth, this kind of progress thing going. The reality is it's one or the other. It's usually too slow and too confusing. And we lose the trail and we have to wait on God. That's why all through the Old Testament you see this rich theology of wait on the Lord. Or... We get right up to where God's going to give us the promise, and it's too scary. I guarantee you every single one of us today is somewhere between those two poles. God is too confusing. It's been too long in this down economy. You've lost too many things. You don't see enough movement. And there's this sense of desperation that you've got to find something to cling to other than God, that will help save you. Or you've been praying like mad for years, and you're like, God, if you just use me, if you just tell me what to do. Like, just, just 
tell me what to do. I'll do it. I want to be where you're at. I want to be doing your things. And we, you pray it and you pray it and it's you and God and it's like we're going to take on the world. And then all of a sudden, God kind of begins leaning on you. And you know what? It's radical. It's radical. God will take you. God will use you. But it is absolutely radical what he's calling you to. And it's a risk and there's fear. And you begin to look and weigh cost-benefit and see the, the, the size of the things you're up against. And you begin to wonder, does God really have me? Will he really carry me as a son? Will I really get through this? And your heart begins to doubt. And you don't have this kind of wholehearted thing. That's our story. It's our story. So I want to apply this then to two things. There's always that how we think and how we feel. You know what I'm talking about? So I want to start with feel and I want to kind of apply this and then I want to look at how we think. But how we think and how we feel are about the most fundamental things of who we are. Does that make sense? And so if this story that God's leading us through and if God is fixed and he's big and he's got it, it's true, how does that affect how we think? The first thing we have to do is realize Idols are ideas first. This idea of progress will lead to the creation of idols. Pragmatic ones, ones that work. But this idea of infinite progress, continuous progress, begins as an idea. Does that make sense? And if we have that idea about progress and about comfort, we're going to find visible things, things that we can see will work, that we're going to worship. And we do that because without it, we have despair and we're not happy. Turn to Philippians. We're going to talk about our feelings here. Paul, Paul says this in Philippians. He's, he's talking. He's been talking about joy. He's been talking about rejoicing. And he's been receiving a gift that he's grateful for. And he says, you know, I have this concern for you. We have this wonderful relationship. I just haven't had the, the chance to show it. And then we get to verse 11. Paul's talking to this church that he cares for. And he says, look, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Like, I'm not trying to, to like work you for more. I'm not trying to milk you. I'm not trying to say I like you because you just gave me something. I'm not, I'm not that's not the motive here. And he goes on and says this fascinating thing. He says, I'm not saying this to you because I'm in need. Again, verse 11 of chapter 4 of Philippians. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The secret of being content. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. When I first became a Christian, I used to quote that verse to myself when I was like running on a treadmill. I used to be in shape and I'd be like in a full-on sprint for like 10 minutes and I'd be dying. And I'd start telling myself, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is absolutely not what this verse is about okay 
And I hear this verse get quoted a lot. I can do anything. You know, like leap tall buildings. No, no, you can't. Um, what you can be, though, in any and every circumstance is content. This is the secret. Paul's saying there's a secret of contentment. And the secret is that is locked away different than your circumstances, whether you've got a lot of money or no money, whether you've got a job right now or no job, whether you have friends that love and support you right now or not, whether you're confused in life or not, whatever the circumstances are, your contentment is locked away somewhere else. That's the secret of contentment. Paul says, man, I've had a lot, I've had little, I've learned the secret. So if we come back to this diagram, it's like, where did he learn the secret of contentment? Was it with Joyce Meyer right here? Or maybe with like Oprah right here? Or maybe it was when he had a lot over here? Or maybe, that's, see, that's not it. He learned that God and the size of God and, and the relevance of God and the bigness of God and his relationship with God and his ability to throw himself on God in every, in every circumstance, whether he's got a lot and he's grateful and thankful or whether he's got nothing and he's waiting and this myth of progress is eating him up or worse yet, because I mean, being patient's one thing, but enduring persecution's another. I mean, that's like, right in the here and now getting wasted. You know what I'm saying? And, and no matter what was going on, he learned that God was still sovereign over all of it. It's the secret. That it's not the progress that defines happiness. It's not having the end goal that somehow gives us this wonderful happiness. By the way, the first question in Redux today is going to be on happiness. We're also going to talk about... Um, Dave Rogers is going to come up. We're going to talk a little bit about trafficking as well. But we're going to, this happiness thing, we've got to get a handle on it. We think this is the outcome or the byproduct of either attaining our goal, having stuff or success, or this myth of progress that somehow like every day is wonderful so I can wake up with a smile. I think Starbucks made their whole money on a coping mechanism for the myth of progress. Everyone wakes up. And you realize today sucks, and you go to Starbucks, and you drug yourself. It's like a little mini golden calf, you know? You worship it. Just melt the earrings and say, this God will get me through today. Where did Paul learn the, the secret of being content? We look for, we, we, we hunger so much for this. It's not bad to be happy. It's not bad to have joy. It's not bad to be content. God gave us desire, a yearning for that. C.S. Lewis said in a letter to Sheldon Van Aken, it's every Christian's duty to be as happy as he can be. Like there's no virtue in being less happy than you can be in the moment. Like Thanksgiving, you got your family, you got food. Eh. I'm going to be godly instead. I'm not going to enjoy this at all because it's a greater virtue to be stoic. You know, it's, that's not good. Okay, happiness, as happy as you can be, just being given thanks for the things you've gotten, all that, like that's a good virtue. So it's not this desire that's bad. It's not understanding that God is the one. 
his relationship to us, his size, the fact that he carries us as a son, the fact that no matter how hard it is now or how scary it is here, that he has got it. It's the whole imagery of adultery that God uses or turning away or stiff-necked. is just that when we don't trust God, when God is small, and we're like, I don't know that he can get that. Or I don't know that he can carry me right here. And we turn away. We become unfaithful. Our faith is no longer in God. Our faith is in something else. This thing here is going to do a better job than God at getting me through. Let me go there. Or let me go back to where God saved me out of. I knew this was bankrupt, but this is really hard, so at least let me go back here because it's comfortable. It's crazy. So the whole idea of the secret of being content, how we feel needs to be shaped. It needs to, to be governed by this idea of God being big and that it's not this myth of progress that even in the tough times, whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, that we have this secret that our contentment is locked into Christ, locked into God, and it's fixed. We can have it. That's why it's like, let your light so shine before man. Man, I think that's joy. It's like the dimmer switch on like the halogen lamps. Just, there's no reason why it can't be turned up. And if your happiness, your contentment isn't there, it's not because life is hard for you right now. It's that we don't know, we don't really have the skill yet or, the, or know the secret yet of throwing ourselves on God. We don't read the Bible as Christians anymore because we don't think God is going to be the source of our contentment. If God is the source of our contentment, when we run into hard times, we immediately go to Scripture and we throw ourselves into the Psalms and into Scriptures and we find our comfort there because that's the only source that's going to give us any hope. The reason we don't, we don't read the Bible is when we run into a problem, we try and fix it. And you know what? When you have a lack of hope, I have a lack of hope, it's not hard to find uh, an idol to worship. It's not hard to find some kind of mechanism, some kind of idea, some kind of solution, some kind of thing that, that presents itself as big that we can follow. Like on Facebook, there's all these like huge guys. And the crazy thing, they used Bowflex to get that big. They really did. You know, like, you guys are like, what is he talking about? I just think it's always funny when they like show the person that supposedly got that big, but they didn't get that big using that. You know what I mean? Like, ab cruncher flexor like no like he didn't use that you just paid him money to act like he uses that anyways you guys are just not with me at all the the idea is like I don't like myself I can be like that guy if I buy the ab flexor cruncher let me try that let me and I'm not saying that that's bad but it's like we go to it for our salvation almost that's gonna get me out of the pit so that's how we feel, and we have to throw that back on God. How about how we think? Turn to Matthew 16 if you can. By the way, each Sunday we're, we're recommending a book. It's just what we're doing because um, we should all be learners, and learners are readers, and readers should have good stuff to read. So basically that's why we're recommending books every week. This is a John Piper book that just came out called Think. It's called The Life of the Mind and the Love of God. We got it at the book table. But Matthew 16... That book kind of put me on to a fun argument. Okay, so Jesus is coming up on these guys and they want a miracle. They want, 
They want a sign just handed to them. They're lazy. Cliff Notes version. I know this really well, right? You don't want to do the investment. You read the Cliff Notes. My wife hates it because I grew up always asking my mom where my stuff was. Hey, Ma, where's this? Hey, Ma, where's that? I mean, just obvious stuff right in front of me. But I got really lazy. Just Mom knew where everything was. So I'm always asking Tamara, like, hey, Tamara, have you seen my whatever? She, she's like, she, she doesn't like it. Um, <laughs> but I'm just like, yeah, you know, let, let them do the work. You know, Tamara, where's this? You know, I don't open my eyes. So these Pharisees come to Jesus like, yeah, we're not really into what you're doing. We're feeling lazy. Give us a sign. Just, just put it right there. Have you ever felt that way? Just write it in the sky. I mean, I hear that all the time. Man, if God would just write it in the sky like an airplane, you know, like sky writing. Why doesn't he just do that? Then I would know. It's these guys are saying that, man. Give us a sign. Jesus says this, verse 2 of chapter 16. Listen to this carefully. He replies, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but yet you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So what Jesus is saying is saying, you guys are very logical. This is a modus ponens. Write this down when you're watching football today. Pull it on someone and they'll think you're smart. But a modus, modus ponens is all the way back to Aristotle and logic and it's if P, then Q. Q Therefore, P. It's modus ponens. Modus tollens is if this was a negative. If P, then not Q. You'd put a little not sign there. I don't know how to erase that now. Darn it. Um, that'd be a modus tollens argument. So Jesus is saying, look, you say to yourself, the sky's red at night, then it, it, it means it's going to be, what, clear in the morning? The sky's red at night, um, you'll see... When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky's red. So in the evening, if the sky's red, if red, then nice in the morning. So it's red, therefore it's nice in the morning. I mean, you guys are very logical. It's like here's, here's the sequence. And now when we look to the sky, we see it's red at night, therefore it's clear in the morning. And he says, yeah, you know, and then in the morning, you see red, and you're like, if it's red in the morning, then it's going to be stormy. And you're smart enough, okay, you people, you Pharisees, whatever, to look at it in the morning and go, oh, it's red in the morning. If it's red in the morning, then it's going to be stormy. So if red, then stormy. It's red, therefore stormy. That's very logical. Then he says to them, you who can think so well, you're so smart, you're logical, you have deductive reasoning capabilities. If you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, then why can't, why uh, why can you not interpret the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. A wicked and adulterous generation. So he's saying you can interpret this. You have the right framework for interpret. Is that spelled right? In, uh, now you won't even know. It's interpret. Um, you can interpret the signs of the, uh, just the weather. So how come you can't do it with the signs of the times? And then he calls them wicked and adulterous, which means they're not following God. 
What we've seen, we saw it last week, is when you're following God, this is God's story and everything is a part of his story. And you look at it and Jesus is saying, how can you not see God's story? It's in scripture. I'm explaining it to you. You're seeing different elements of it. How can you not interpret the signs of the times? How can you not see this story? He's like, you haven't even read the book. You're like, you're asking your mom to find your sweatshirt for you. You don't care enough to really try to interpret or understand the story. You're not invested there. Why? If this isn't at the center of the story, what did we learn last week? It's this. And this, when you recalibrate to, to you, looks all over the place. And you look at it and you're like, I don't understand how any of this goes together. Because not, I'm not interpreting it collectively as a part of the church, that, that God's doing something with the body of Christ, uh, his kingdom and the story, this narrative. I'm not interpreting it collectively. I am interpreting it individualistically. And I'm also interpreting it through this lens of my life is the center point, And this idea that everything should be getting better is kind of the idea that I'm under. I don't understand what God's doing. Why did he take my house? Why did, I, why did my so-and-so leave me? These are painful realities. I'm not minimizing that at all. But they don't make sense when you just see yourself. When we understand that we have to approach this logically, just like this over here, if this, then that. You know, God is about redeeming people and reconciling the world to himself and about bringing people to Christ and glorifying himself. And he's going to take broken people and use it. And that pain you suffered is going to become your ministry. I guarantee it. If you'll turn it over to God, he will then take you, turn you around, and you'll go back to people in the middle of that pain. Just like Moses came out of Egypt and he went right back into it. God always takes you and, and uses experiences and even pain to shape you so that he can then use you as a part of his plan. We begin to interpret pains. We begin to interpret seasons of waiting, which is shaping our character. We begin to interpret other things with this idea of God is doing something. It might not even be through me right now, but I can celebrate what he's doing through you and collectively look at this success. We interpret the signs of the times. And so this whole idea of this myth of progress, our own individual progress, when we get rid of that and we begin to understand how we should think, we, we think, we think in terms of this paradigm, this God paradigm, that God is at work, that his story is how we interpret things. And our logic actually can work. It's not as confusing as we think it is. And then how we feel is saying, you know what? It's not the circumstances that are going to make me happy or content. I'm going to throw myself at Scripture every morning. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be on my knees demanding of God, I will not leave my knees until you strengthen me. If you don't fill me up, if you don't give me this sense of I can do all things through Christ, I'm going to walk out of here grumpy and people are going to see me grumpy and I will not bear that kind of testimony to you, God. You ground me in Christ now. You give me some kind of strength so I can walk out of here with joy despite my circumstances so that I will be a witness to the power you can do. Like what, what it is to be a son of God. 
It changes everything about how we approach our life. How we think, how we feel is all different with the size of our God. We don't go other places. We go here. Christians, it's real simple. We have one answer to everything. That's not flippant and that's not to, make, to say that things aren't relevant. We have one answer, but to see how it connects to that circumstance, we throw ourselves on God. God, help me understand. Help clarify. Help me see the logic. Help me experience your presence. It's not easy. But for a Christian, we either wait on God or we come right up against a risk, something so scary that we have to throw ourselves back on God and trust that he's going to lead us through that. That's the tension. I want to read you something from kind of in closing here from a Puritan. And Puritans were crazy guys. And they were like the first UFC fighters, I think. They're just crazy extreme guys. So this sounds very churchy, but that's cool. Um, it's okay. This is going to sound very churchy, but it's killer theology. Listen to this. This is what he says. The book is A Lifting Up for the Downcast by William Bridge, okay? Um, a Lifting Up for the Downcast. And he says this. Have you not had some intermissions in your pain, in your temptations, in your suffering? Have you not had some intermissions, some revivings, some breathing times? Job complained that he was not suffered to swallow his spittle, that he was so thirsty he couldn't even swallow his, his saliva, that he had no breathing time as he thought. But though your temptations have been long and very long, yet you have had revivings. Satan has left you for a season. And if it be true that God has such an overruling hand of grace upon your temptations, that your very temptations shall turn to your good, that thereby you are more enlightened, humbled, and your grace increased. Your temptations will turn to your very good, such that you will be more enlightened, humbled, and your grace increased. Then the longer you are in this school the better scholar you shall be, the more enlightened and the more humbled and the more gracious. If we get rid of the myth of progress and we realize that sometimes God has us in these seasons of testing and we begin to realize he's going to turn it for good, the more we can surrender to that and say, if you're going to do your work, do it all the way. I want to be more enlightened, more humbled and more gracious. Why should you then be discouraged though your temptations be very long? But you say, I am tempted many times to doubt of my childship, whether I be a child of God or no. So the idea is like, is God really going to care? I, I get that God's big, but he feels very distant. And I don't trust that he's really got me, little me, in this pain, these circumstances. He's really going to carry me. And so this guy anticipates that. And he says, you're doubting whether God's really got you as a father would a son. And he says, and was not Christ our Savior tempted so? There are but three particular temptations mentioned in all the 40 days of Christ's temptation. And two of them run thus, in quotes, If thou be the Son of God, and here Satan labors to draw a cloud upon Christ's assurance and to write an if upon his childship or sonship, do you expect to march through your enemy? Do you expect to march through your enemy's country to heaven, 
and never be in perplexity about your condition? Do you expect to march through this life, through the desert, through your enemy's country to heaven and never doubt, never be in perplexity about your condition, your, your connection to God? Suppose a man should travel through a strange wide country wherein he, is, he never was before and wherein were many crossways. Would you not wonder that he should travel all the way and never be perplexed about his way? Never question his way? Whether it's right or wrong, you're on a trail in the woods and it gets thin and you begin to wonder, am I on the right trail or not? If you be a child of God, you are away from home and you're traveling home and you're warring in a strange country. And do you think it, it is possible? And would it not be a wonder that meeting with so many crossways, so many difficult situations, you should never be perplexed about your condition or question your way whether you be right or no. We are on this journey. God is taking us from where he found us and he's leading us on and it is not going to get better every day. And there are going to be times when we wait and where we doubt, where we wonder if we're lost or if God's going to be near enough to carry us um, or we get all the way here and we wonder how in the world can I overcome these things? It's too radical. And we begin to wonder if we have this connection with God that is normal. That is the Christian life. So let me give you the Twitter statements in conclusion, and then the band's going to come back up. But here's the Twitter statements. Every God wants something from you. Everything you make a God, the real God and everything that you make into a God wants something from you. Everything you believe in has a price of admission. To trust God means we have to wait on God. And to wait on God means continuous progress is a myth. It's an idol we have to shatter. Conformity shows which God you're obeying. When I was in a fraternity, there was a set of rules that you had to obey. If this was your life, this was what you trusted in for life, for your identity, there was a price of admission. There was a set of rules that you had to obey. What you're conforming to shows what you're worshiping. Does that make sense? Is it the American dream? Is it continuous progress? Is it happiness in your situation or a different kind of contentment? But whatever you're conforming to, it shows what God you're obeying. What you're conforming to shows what you're trusting in. Every God has a price of admission. With our God, the price of admission is sometimes that we'll have to wait. Sometimes we'll have to risk. But no matter what, we have to give up this myth of the idea of progress. Father, we, we want grace. We desperately need your grace. We can't, we can't do this without you. You're the source of our contentment. You're the source of our hope. You're the source of our joy. You're the source of our strength. It's a, and that's good news. Let us experience that, fall on that, fall in love with that, run to it. Let us be changed by the good news so radically that that's the witness that when we walk outside in the morning, that when we go places, our transformed lives by the good news that you are there, that you ground it all, 
that good news would be so clear and evident to others. May we, may we be a true witness, not only to your size and your strength, but also your goodness and your grace. We pray that in Christ's name.